This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. You're listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London alongside Alex Steele over in New York. Um, lots to talk about today. Uh, we've had issues with the US aviation sector. Uh, it, we'll talk about that later. Uh, we've had a lot of retail numbers out of the UK today and of Europe. We'll talk about that. Uh, plus, we've got general kind of market action ahead of the CPI tomorrow that is firmly worth some focus. How do we position for that CPI print tomorrow? Alex, Equity markets are doing okay today, but there does seem to be some caution, I suspect. I guess with CPI coming tomorrow, that's understandable. Yeah, I just don't get it. I mean, the Nasdaq 100, so the big cap tech, up for four days in a row. We haven't seen that since September. And I just wonder, is it a FOMO thing? Like, you think that we'll get a reading tomorrow where you'll see inflation come down a little bit more sharply, and therefore you want to be positioned for that in case there's a big rally, and like tech is the way to do that, and you don't want to miss out on that? Or we just repositioning into tomorrow it, it it is honestly a bit confusing well one of the theories i've got around this is that it all got beaten up so much last year that people have kind of bought it back into it a little bit in terms yeah. of the tech story um i think there were probably a few shorts out there that maybe have been covered a little bit but yeah i i, I hear what you're saying maybe people are anticipating a a softer number tomorrow and i guess if yields come down which they have been you would expect a pretty decent bounce coming through on that. Which then raises the question for me, like, where is the risk then tomorrow at 8.30? Is the yep. risk the number's actually super high and things adjust, or that it actually comes down? Yeah. Then, like, what's actually priced in going to the number, the massive volatility that we're going to see? It's going to be fun. So seven out of the last 12 CPI prints that we've had, stocks have fallen, which I guess means uh, that you have seen quite a few gains on the CPI number. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's what the new trend is going to be. Let's talk about what's been happening here in the UK today. We've had strikes ongoing. We'll focus on that a little bit later on in the show. But I want to start with talking about what's happening in the retail space, which I think is absolutely fascinating. So Sainsbury out with numbers a little bit earlier on, the big UK grocer. Uh, We're going to be seeing Tesco reporting numbers tomorrow. Now, the Sainsbury number today were actually fairly good. Um... But I think the market was expecting a little bit more. And as a result of which, the stock's been down, let's call it circa 2%. The numbers generally were fairly favourable. People clearly have been spending a lot of money over Christmas. General merchandising, i.e. clothes, etc. weren't that great, but were still up. Uh, and this is maybe a bit of a kind of harbinger of what we get tomorrow uh, out of Tesco. The other story that's worth focusing on today has been JD Sports Fashion, which had a really strong story uh, to tell today. Uh, the younger cohorts, they don't have to pay rent, they don't have to worry about the utility bills, they don't have to pay for groceries, etc. Uh, and they are definitely outspending. And we've got ASOS out with numbers tomorrow. But more broadly, we have seen retailers being one of the best performing sectors so far this year. Let me just give you some numbers. So Zalando, the German retailer, are by 22%. And we're talking about year-to-date here. It's the 11th of January. JD Sports is up by 20%. Marks & Spencer is up by 16%. It's going to report numbers tomorrow, Alex. Hennis & Maritz up by 16%. I know that you and others are still spending money, but this looks like a bit of a a kind of... This is a big reaction since the start of the year. Yeah, um... I'm still spending, but are we spending money? I mean, this is where I feel like we're 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 going to go off the rails on this because, um, if the consumer keeps getting crimped, I mean, you're going to see the top line revenue grow slow. If top line revenue grow slows, what happens to the margins? How do they make that up? And are we not priced for that? Or 
where we price for such a terrible cost of living increase that may not be as bad, and we're yep. making up some of that performance. 50-50? I guess one of the factors behind this could be that actually gas prices have come down really sharply. Sure, but all you need is like one cold snap and forget it. I mean, are you really going to bet that we're, we're, we're going to have nice weather for the next three or four months? Mm, I don't think I'd like that. to take that bet, by the way. Um, <laughs> well, let's let's get a let's get a kind of more informed opinion as to what is happening here. Bloomberg uh, Opinions Retail and Consumer Goods columnist Andrea Felstead joins us in the studio. Andrea, I look at the Sainsbury's numbers, and they look solid. I, I look at the numbers from JD today; they look really quite good. Everybody's getting very excited about retail stocks. Is that a mistake? Yes. The pain hasn't disappeared. It's just been deferred. Christmas wasn't a turkey. Yep. But this year looks very challenging. And that hasn't changed. So so what's going on then? Like, why are we all of a sudden feeling so much better in, in terms of what the stocks are doing? Well, the consumers did come out and spend over Christmas. Now, I always thought this Christmas wouldn't be as bad as people thought. Because I remember 0809. Mm. Um even when things were really awful, people wanted to have a nice Christmas. Um, there's also been a bit of, you know, government support for energy prices. They haven't really kicked in yet. The mortgage pain hasn't really been felt yet. We've got a lot of this to come. Now, the one caveat is that inflation does start to come down, I'd say around the, you know, maybe in the second half of the year. Plus, employment is pretty strong. So those two factors, you know, may help things. But I think the next few months, Christmas, credit card bills start yeah. landing on the mat. I, I think that I think they're very challenging. Do, do we know how much of Christmas was paid for on credit? Like, I'm seeing the credit card numbers here in the UK absolutely skyrocket. Yeah, yeah. Um, consumers have used a bit of their savings. You know, consumer balance sheets were strong coming out of the pandemic, but everybody spent on holidays last year. Um and they've been prepared to have that nice Christmas on credit, buy now, pay later. Yep. So I think, you know, we will see see the impact of that in the first part of this year. We always do after Christmas. Everyone has to pay for their Christmas. But we've got that coinciding with energy bills. And although inflation, we hope, will come down, it's still pretty high. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I think the, the first half, at least, I think will be very challenging. Then I think it really depends what happens with inflation and what happens with employment and how painful the mortgage situation is. So, uh, and also, at least here, I don't know about you guys in the US, but we got tax season coming up. You have to pay into your payroll tax. Like, it hurts that first quarter. Um, in terms of costs and inputs for these guys, where is still the biggest headache and how successful have they been in managing that? For for the retailers, it is really energy costs and it is wages. And um, they are still having to, um, you know, deal with those. Co energy costs have, have, have come down a little, as, as Guy said, but wages are still, uh, are still increasing. Sainsbury's announced a pay increase recently. It's the third one that they've had to do in the last 12 months. Yeah, it? they've they've all been increasing wages. But what we've got at the moment is we've got this situation that I think has been somewhat overlooked. Inflation's really good for the supermarkets. You know, when you've got prices going up, they, you know, they can get out of bed on a Monday morning and they don't have to do anything on their sales are rising. Um, so, you know, those same store sales are flattered down? by inflation. Are people they, spending, like, are they actually buying the same amount of groceries? They are changing their behaviour. They're all adapting. But even so, 
volumes are coming down a bit. Even so, those sales are growing because of inflation. Now, when that when that start, and that will probably that 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 will that is probably going to be ahead of the cost they're experiencing. Hence, why Sainsbury's upgraded their yep. profit figures. And I bet tomorrow. Tesco will be pretty good, and I mm-hmm. think Marks and Spencers will be pretty good as well. So I think they're all having the same the same issue now. When food prices go start to stabilise or go down, you don't have that sort of tailwind, and they need to sell more to get that same value of sales. And what you need, you need a weaker player to take share from. Um, and at the moment, that's looking like like Morrison's. Morrison's has been underperforming. Bit of green shoots recently, but it has been underperforming. Waitrose hasn't been doing terribly well. So you, you've got that weaker player that's helping them too. Okay, so let's go to the broader retail. This is my world here. ASOS <laughs> reporting tomorrow. So yeah, I, how bad is it going to be for fast fashion if this is the situation for consumers? I don't think it's fast fashion per se. I think it's online versus shops. Now, the other thing that's happened is we have all rediscovered our love of shopping in a physical store. And part of that was due to the strikes, poster strikes. Guy, is this um, true? Guy, can you confirm? <laughs> I actually pulled the face at that point. <laughs> uh, not for me personally, but I can understand that others will have done. Um, certainly, every time I've been to a high street recently it's been busy yeah and i think the postal strike really played into that uh, before christmas so sainsbury's was saying that argos a big thing about argos is which i remember hasn't always been a great performer yep. but this time round you know you can you can order on your phone you can go and collect it from your local sainsbury store that was really appealing for people because they could order online and know it would be there they wouldn't have to wait for the post so that's really helping just you know we like to try things on and we like to look at the actual color of the lipstick and those people that said (laughs) said you know physical retail's dead after the pandemic you know you know have not been right and i think asos is we're going to see that asos that switch away from online ordering back into stores is really hurting online ms ms the food side I good. can get. They've, yeah. they've done really well over Christmas. I think M&S clothing is going to be good. Now, what they were saying when they reported there, I think it was the half year results in yeah. November, they said, look, our our customer demographic is a bit older. That's always yeah. been a problem for M&S. They've always been chasing the younger customer. But at the moment, actually, that's pretty good. They haven't got mortgages. They're maybe a little bit better off. Oh, so older bit, people yeah. without mortgages. Okay, okay, yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. It so I, I think, it, I think M&S is going to be good tomorrow. I could be wrong. The other thing is, is, you know, we've had a lot of people disappear from the high street, Topshop, the Arcadia brands, Debenhams. Yep. Okay, we had like last Christmas, but you know, MS has really been benefiting from that. And next will have done too. Um, so I think um I, I would think the MS MS would be benefiting from that. MS would be benefiting from the return to physical stores. Next said they underestimated the impact of Omicron last year and how much it depressed footfall. So I mm-hmm. I, I, th- I think MS MS would be good tomorrow on clothing as well as food. Um, talk to me about how, wh- what area of retail is going to surprise us the most. And I say that because if you would have told me that e-commerce was not going to do as well as physical store shops a, a year ago, I would have thought that was nuts. So what's going to be the trend? Because the risk is that everyone all of a sudden then runs back to the store, forgets about e-commerce, and all of a sudden it switches again. And then those that don't have the money and our investment in e-commerce suffer. How do we think about that? I think um, we'll see much more of a a balance between the two. We, we, there's, a, there's a sort of 
buzzword in retail, Fi Digital, um, Fi Digital, which is physical stores and online. That's and a so I, word. I know. So I think those two, I think those with both will will win. And you know, obviously the yeah. the big one that has that is Next. You know, it has. It has a strong online. It has good, well-invested stores, stores that you actually want to go to. Yeah. So I, I think it will be those with the with the combination that will win. But saying that, I think Primark will still be very strong. I think the the bargain basement will still be very strong. Primark hasn't got online, but you go there because you know it's cheap and it's compelling. Um, the, the, the fashion's good. It's very reasonably priced. So I th- I think those those discount retailers even if they don't have online, will, will also be winners this What's year. What's the signal from Amazon closing three warehouses? I think it's just how just how difficult e-commerce, just that switch away from e-commerce. Um, like Amazon's a, I, how, how did Amazon not see this one coming? I, I don't know how anybody did. We had John Lewis. You know, John Lewis closed many, many stores in the UK because they thought everything was moving to online. I, I think that will turn out to be a mistake. Mm-hmm. It will level up. But we, we like to order online we like the convenience but we all like also like to go and look at products particularly you know if you are spending quite a lot of money you want to see it and physically touch the dress and see what the yeah and see what the quality of the fabric is that is like Mm -hmm. and and you do want to go to a store and you know luxury if, if you're buying something expensive you want that whole luxury experience to go with it you want to walk out with the bag that makes you look fancy. Let's, exactly, with like, as many ribbons as you can fit on it. Like, let's be honest. Um, <laughs> uh, what was I going to yeah. ask a brilliant question? Oh, okay. Inventory. That's right. Here's my brilliant yeah. question. Where are these guys in relation to inventory? And this is my way of asking, when do the sales get the best? And then when do we start having clean read on inventory? <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I'm my to book, man. So basically, I'm, Alex wants to transfer their inventory to her inventory. I'm sorry to tell you, exactly you right. this is probably the, as good as it gets. Okay, no, that's um, fair. If, if I gotta spend now, I gotta spend now. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, you don't. You got a budget. I just What we see happening, what we've seen happening, is obviously everybody overordered, and now they are really addressing that by cutting back, cancelling orders where they can, cutting back orders, so they are really trying to control that inventory. And um, you know, Next was saying last week that that's actually one of the things helping inflation because factories, as everybody's doing this, factories have more capacity you know we were very short on factory capacity there's there's more capacity coming in there's more freight your freight rates are falling and there's more capacity so um so so we are seeing orders being controlled and unfortunately for consumers that probably means less bargains sorry you're not <laughs> sorry He's I, 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 so I, I, I find it fascinating alex herself what is it 150 bucks a week a week and it rolls over and even Andrew's got a mouth open going, oh, my Lord. <laughs> I, I agree. It sounds like a very big number to me. But, but, you know, if you go to a sample sale, you can, you know what? This is an offline combo, Andrea. I'll, I'll walk you through my psychology here. Uh, get excited. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Tomorrow's the day. It's 8.30 uh, a.m. I think it's 1.30 then, your time, over yep. in the U.K. You get CPI. Here's the expectation. Month on month, looking at a decrease of one-tenth of one percent. 
on a core level, though, it's going to go up to three-tenths of one percent. Now, the overall number could be kind of good. Could be looking at 6.5% in December uh, and a core coming in at 5.7% on a year-on-year basis. Is it good enough? What's the market pricing in? we got to get to Michael McKee, Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent, joins us now. Um, Mike, what would be a positive number for the economy and a positive number for the markets? <laughs> Any of those numbers would be positive, but nobody cares about those on Wall Street. Uh, the number everybody wants to see is sort of an artificial construct because uh, – it, it's not reported as such by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, but it's core services X housing. Because Jay Powell uh, a couple of weeks ago said that's where inflation is right now. Uh, they know that housing is pushing up. So is the that core. like is that like restaurant bills? Is that medical? Like is that what you're well, talking about? Well, it's everything. You take out food and you take out energy. And then you look at the services sector, everything that's in the services industries, except for housing, because housing they know is distorted. And so if you want to see what's fundamentally happening with inflation underneath, that's what Powell is worried about. And he said the biggest thing driving that has been wages, because wages are the biggest cost for service companies. So I'm sure everybody has got their algorithms set up to immediately produce a number. I, I'm sure we do, too, even though it's not in the original release. It's all the fun stuff, basically, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. So watch the fun stuff tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Will this what, what, what would that be? Fun stuff is shopping. I don't know. Go, yeah. Yeah, besides the, shopping, restaurants, bars, cinemas, services. Uh, well, the, the services, oh, interestingly enough, admission Haircuts. to events went up big in mm -hmm. the last uh, in, in the last CPI. Nobody knows why. But uh, Isn't that like concerts that, and like yeah, sports that, stuff? That's mm -hmm. probably a one-off kind sports of thing. Sports stuff. Um, most things in there are not that big a contributor, but we'll be looking okay. at the usual suspects like auto used car prices and uh, things like that, uh, rental cars, um, airline fares. Yep. Uh, they went, they had been going up, and then they leveled off, and who knows well, what Well, that's interesting. So, so, if, if, so we heard from Jeff Curry earlier on. He was talking about the fact that he's, he thinks that fuel prices are going to go up quite significantly, and mm -hmm. U.S. carriers are not hedged, and therefore they will try and pass that on. So you could see a significant reacceleration in that number. Mike, is tomorrow's number going to decide whether or not the Fed goes 25 or 50 at the next meeting? I think basically it will. Uh, if it if it's benign like the uh, forecasts are, then they'll go 25. They don't they don't have a sort of need or a PR ability to say we need to do 50 at this point. If it came in shockingly high, it could push them to 50. And there's always the possibility they want to look at something else out there. But I think if we get what people are expecting, and, and economists aren't that bad at at uh, forecasting CPI. Um, <laughs> it, it, well, it's interesting because it's come in lower amazing. than expectations the last couple of months. And so if that happens again, <laughs> that'll be seen as, as relatively good news. Can we talk about positioning in the market for a second? Um, JP Morgan had a note out that said, if there's a downside surprise, that you could see as much as 2% upside for the S&P. Do you get the feeling that the market, and I'm talking about the equity market, is positioning itself for that downside surprise right now? I'm trying to make sense of this equity rally. Um, 
Probably in a broader sense. I, I, you know, I'm not sure that you could say 5,000 different stocks or even 500 different stocks trade on the idea that we're going to get a tenth or two change in the CPI tomorrow. But the idea that either we're going to have a recession or we're going to have inflation yep. falling off and the Fed is in either case going to back off is probably helping fuel that. I think the more interesting thing, of course, and I come at from the economist perspective rather than the equity strategist is what happens in the bond market. This last year, uh, volatility on CPI days in the bond market has been Nuts. extremely high. Mm -hmm. And so I wouldn't be surprised if we didn't see something like that again. Okay. So, so sorry, Alex, what time does the number come out again? 8.30. So, Mike, do we, do we see the market reaction at what? Sort of 8.30? <laughs> Sort of twenty four, eight twenty five. When when do we get the market? I, I joke because last time around, yeah. Oh, there I was see. Significant He's suspicion. making it funny. There, there was there was uh, certainly extraordinary suspicion about what happened. A lot of trading in the thirty seconds before it was released, and uh, we'll watch for that again this time. Uh, supposedly, investigations found nothing wrong, but uh, somebody traded like they knew something, if even if they didn't. I mean, maybe they were just really smart and kind of nailed it there. Well, that's sort of like you know, if I were if if I had been smart, I would have bought Tesla two years ago and sold it six months ago. Yeah, I mean, you know, we can go I'm on and smart. on on that point. Yeah. Um, talk about a little bit. Rapid McGunlock was saying yesterday, so he was like, "Look at the market. Look at the bond market. Don't listen to what the Fed says. The bond market is telling you we're going to have a recession. Things are really going to hurt. The Fed's telling you they're going to hike to five percent plus." How do you think those two things get re reconciled, particularly within the conversations in the Fed? I think. Only what you're going to look for is over a period of time they converge. The bond market changes its mind every day based on new information and sometimes several times a day, as we saw last Friday between the jobs report and the ISM services number. And the Fed makes new forecasts every three months. And so uh, the Fed doesn't catch up, uh, get, get a chance to catch up and spin differently. But the problem is uh, the bond market is looking to see the Fed. Uh, the bond market anticipates the Fed, and they're looking for rate cuts later this year. And that has loosened financial conditions, which works against what the Fed's trying to do. So the Fed is sticking to its story because they don't want yeah. to say, yeah, you're right, it's a possibility, because then who knows what the sell-off Who do you think's like. right, the market or the Fed? Um, I would say it this way. The Fed is right because the Fed is always right. They're the ones who make... He's talking his book. The, the, ...who make the decision. <laughs> I mean, they can decide what they want to do with interest rates, and the bond market can push them, but they can't make them do it. Uh, but the Fed is looking over a different time horizon mm -hmm. than bond traders. Guys, message nine, the thing that you get when you email him is the market's always right. Just saying, you guys should duke uh, yep. it out. Um, all right, Mike, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Looking forward to the analysis tomorrow. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk more about commodities. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. All right, we just gave you the CPI preview uh, for tomorrow. Let's get a quick check in here on U.S. markets. Equities rising in the run-up to that CPI data. Tech in particular, the Nasdaq 100 now up for four straight days. We haven't seen that kind of rally uh, since early September. 
The question to me really becomes, are we just setting ourselves up for some downside here? Are we seeing some buy the rumor, sell the news kind of situation? Is nothing fundamentally has still changed? Uh, does inflation come down fast? How fast is, does it come down? What happens to growth in the meantime? Those still seem to be the key questions. Um, the other amazing thing that happened today was what happened with airlines. So apparently the system where you have pilots and crews able to get regular updates crashed here in the U.S. It grounded all flights. If you were in the air, you could still land. But it grounded all flights for a few hours. Guy, I've never really heard of something like this before. Is this is this a crazy, unusual thing? Because this truly shocked me. Uh, it was crazy. It is crazy and unusual. I think the last time we saw a total grounding in the United States was 9-11, just to give you some context. Mm. Um, but we have seen ongoing issues with air traffic control. We've certainly seen those as we've been coming out of the pandemic. Uh, there have been issues in the United States. And there's always been this fear as well that the the system is exposed. Um, so it was interesting to hear the president coming out fairly quickly, I thought, indicating that there was no evidence at this point that this was a cyber, cyber attack. Um, so it may have just been a system failure. Uh, it happened last night. We all only heard about it, though, this morning uh, when this grounding took place. Uh, and basically, this system gives kind of real-time, um, must-know information to pilots and crew. Uh, this is kind of protocol information at, at airports. It's safety information. It's, it is absolutely mission critical. So th they couldn't kind of restart the system with making without making sure that it was absolutely functioning as it should. Um, US airlines have been affected by this. There will be ongoing disruptions as a result of this. Looks like Southwest, unfortunately, which has been the uh, oh, that yeah. have been hit fairly hard over the last few days. Looks like it's been hit the hardest by this, though. Yeah, and um, Kriti Gupta went out there early in the morning to LaGuardia. Now, if there's one airport you probably don't want to be stuck in when this is happening, it's most definitely LaGuardia. Despite the expansion, LaGuardia just cannot get its act together when it comes to dealing with any kind of rain or storm. So forget this kind of shutdown. So let's get to Kriti now and get some uh, detail on what's happening on the ground. Kriti, how is it there? Well, it's actually kind of calm, but I was going to say that I think there are still a lot of delays that you were seeing from the likes of United, from Delta, from Southwest. To your point, Alex, and for our international audience, you are starting to see a lot of pain, specifically isolated or focus concentrated on the domestic players. So Southwest, for example, getting hit the most because their exposure is mostly domestic. A similar story for this particular airport, LaGuardia, because it is pretty much a domestic airport. The flights here don't go to London, Paris, for example. No, they go to Boston, they go to Dallas, they go to Tampa. Uh, so that, that is where you're seeing the kind of core of the issues. But what's interesting to me is that this has become an all-day sort of issue. There's a massive ripple effect that a lot of airlines are saying will end by the end of the day. It doesn't necessarily look like it when you're looking at about 6,700 cancellations or, excuse me, delays and about 1,000 cancellations nationwide. Critty, in terms of in terms of what you're seeing thus far, are passengers, are, are there sort of big queues? Are passengers handling this? Like, delays at airports like the Guardia seem to have become kind of part and parcel of just travel in the United States. They're kind of background noise in some ways. Is this being treated in the same way? They have definitely been, um, I would say, a feature of a lot of the travel chaos, especially since the kind of reawakening or reopening story uh, post-COVID. You have actually seen that kind of get built into the travel time. That being said, uh, when you're looking at what's going on on the ground here, you aren't actually seeing, once again, a ton of long queues. It's not kind of like the chaos you saw over the summer in Europe, for example. So those are not the images we're seeing. But you are seeing, uh, for example, families that have been waiting here for two, three hours, and that is not normal 
for a domestic airport like LaGuardia. Mm-mm-mm. I would. Uh, I have obviously traumatic experiences from LaGuardia. I'm obviously talking about <laughs> on that. Hey, Kriti, uh, thanks a lot, and you gotta get ready for TV. We appreciate your time. Um, so let's get more on this with George Ferguson. He joins us from Bloomberg Intelligence. George, do we know what happened? I don't think we know the cause of what happened, but like you said, it's you know it's all about safety. Uh, that NODAM system is is extremely important, right? Because it advises pilots if uh, there's any systems out at the airport that they're landing at, right? If an instrument approach might not be available, or if there's airspace they can't fly through, so you just can't let them go uh, if they don't know. It's just not doesn't meet the standard of safety, and so it creates, a, creates obviously a huge problem in the in the network. George, I've been I, every time I have a conversation with a CEO of a U.S. carrier, and Scott Kirby at United is a kind of perfect case in point here, he points the finger firmly at deficiencies within the air traffic control system, and he says they have caused significant problems. They've really affected the uh, the ramp back up uh, sort of post-pandemic. Is, is USATC, is, is the system the FAA runs fit for purpose? I mean, it, it, operates, uh, it operates well most days, right? But uh, obviously... You know, from time to time, there are problems. It's it's a federal government agency. Uh, you know, it's funded through uh, the budget. It's also funded, I think, through a bunch of user fees. Uh, but I think there's you know there's always more that they could do that they would spend on technology than they can. So there's always it's always a function of uh, you, you know uh, looking at the highest priority uh, you know needs and funding it. And so mm-hmm. I think you've always got that challenge where. The systems all aren't at the level that you'd like them to be. A lot of this system stuff was built uh, middle of the last century, and we upgraded it over time. It's old. There's old code inside there and stuff like that. So it's you know it's a it's it's big and it's a bear to to bring up to modern uh, modern technology. This brings me to Southwest, which, due to its own more antiquated technology cannot operate in the same kind of way that like an American Airlines or a Delta or United or even Spirit can in terms of rescheduling flights and dealing with crews and pilots. How bad is this kind of thing that isn't Southwest's fault, but again, exposes these uh, these issues in the company? How bad is that? Yeah, I mean, so uh, the Southwest, uh, you know, event over Christmas, if you want to call it an event, um, you know, if you look back you know, previous in 2022, American Airlines had some similar problems during the year. And so I don't think Southwest is that far behind anybody else. But the airlines have the same problem the federal government has. We all can't spend all of our budget on tech and system redundancy. And so we pick the highest priority items. And every so often, things break down, right? And so um, all these carriers in 2019, you know, they could fly a schedule that was bigger than they flew today with probably less problems than we've had in recent times. There is some new staffing coming in. It's got to be trained and everything, and that creates, that creates a little bit of a challenge. Yep. But they did it in 2019. So, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not like they're using, uh, you know, chisels and abacuses here to get this done. It's just that it's not... Uh, yeah. It's a big problem. But, but there is this kind of issue, with, and we're debating this in Europe at the moment, George, that if you were to significantly upgrade the skies, you could make some really big savings, and that would have a carbon footprint impact as well. I, is, there going, I, is there kind of part of the, the narrative of developing a lower carbon footprint for the aviation sector about improving ATC? There is, right? Because right now, you know, we use airways, right? Airways in the sky are like highways. 
so we can keep track of airplanes going east and west, north and south, keep them separated by altitudes. Um, those are artificial constructs, you know, built by radio navigation systems. If you let people go direct with GPS systems, you'd need a lot more sophisticated system to keep track of where everybody was and deconflict them. But you could allow airplanes to go more direct and save some money. So that all kinds of things you could do with money and technology. Mm-hmm. All right. Hey, George, really appreciate it. Thank you so much, George Ferguson, BI Senior Aerospace Defense and Airline uh, Analyst, putting things in perspective for us. So I'm headed out. I'm going to anchor the 1 p.m. on television. Guy's going to take you through uh, the rest of the hour. I'll see you guys tomorrow. Guy, I'll see you in a second. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. I can't believe that Alex has departed for our commodities chat. So let's talk commodities. Um, a whole series of miners hitting 52-week highs. Copper hitting 9,000 a ton. It surged through that today. All of this on China reopening. Yet, at the same time, energy costs are coming down. Brent crude year-to-date is down by 4%. So why are we getting the difference? Well, that was the question that I asked to Jeff Curry, Goldman Sachs head of commodities research, a little earlier on. Weather. It's warm out. Um, you know, somebody in New Jersey recently said it's so warm out, you open your window and you're still hot. Um, you know, the, the, it is a 2.4 standard deviation weather shock in the U.S., 2.1 uh, you know, standard deviation weather shock here in Europe. So that's the bottom line of why oil is lagging um, copper. But I want to emphasize it's temporary. Um, you know, gas prices on both sides of the Atlantic are off more than 20%. This took away the gas to oil substitution. But when you think about the weather shock is a transient shock, what's going on in China is more persistent. So we do expect that you will see oil catch up to copper once it gets through this you know, wheat spill driven by weather. Because when you think about oil versus copper, what is the best reopening play? It is oil. What is idle? Planes, trains, and automobiles. You turn them all back on, that's going to be a big pop in oil demand um, that should really start to impact oil prices as soon as we get on the backside of the Chinese New Year. So weather causing the near weakness to, to oil. So, so we're going to see a big bounce in, in crude over the next few weeks, as you say, post-Chinese Lunar New Year. How big? Can you just give us a sort of size and scale uh, idea about what you're thinking? Well, uh, our, our current forecast is 90 for 1Q, and we think that the reopening gains momentum when you get into t- uh, 2Q to 95. Now, because this is a faster-than-expected reopening, you add five more dollars to that 95 to get you to the 100. And if we see those international aircraft get back into the sky and we see people going out of China and back in China, throw another $5 and you're to, you know, up to, you know, 110 by uh, third quarter. So I think, you know, the key here is this is a big shift. And let's remember what reopening in the U.S. and Europe did to oil and commodities. You know, we're very positive on both oil as well as copper as you get the reopening. But I want to make another distinction here. There's the reversal of the zero COVID policy that impacts oil substantially like here. But when we think about copper, there's also the growth impulse, the stimulus going on in the property market, the reversal of the three red lines. Um, That's also creating an impetus for copper. But I think oil's the true reopening play. 
Okay, well, let's just dwell on copper for a moment, if we could. 9,000 a today, a ton, 9,000 a ton. Traffic Gura was saying that the market is at a critical stage at this point, and you could see some real extremes in copper. Do you agree with that, and what could those extremes look like? Yeah, absolutely. You know, our, our target end of the year is 11,500, which is a long ways away from here. But longer term, you know, we're in line with traffic gear. We see $15,000 a ton. You know, there's a structural imbalance in these markets. You're likely to see peak copper supply in 2024, meaning supply does that. And we like to call copper the new oil. You cannot um, decarbonize the world and use electricity to the extent we expect without substantial copper consumption. And you don't have the supply. You get a wedge between the two. Once the market begins to price that structural imbalance, we see the upside start to be significant. And let's not forget oil. Copper, pick your commodity. Inventories are exhausted. Spare capacity exhausted. One other point I want to emphasize for copper, oil, and all these markets, physically, they're priced for a recession. They're de-stocked. So, um, you know, when you think about the shelves are empty on, uh, you know, yep. at, the, at the input level. So they're not prepared for a demand increase. Jeff Curry from Goldman Sachs. He thinks that Brent oil is going to reach $110 a barrel by the third quarter. It's got some really big upside targets on copper as well. Commodities very mixed at the moment. Jeff's very confident that they're all going to be moving in one direction, and that is higher. We're going to talk Prudential next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson. Alex Steele uh, out for this half hour. She's on Bloomberg Television very, very shortly. Uh, a moment ago, we were just hearing from Jeff Curry talking about his big upside calls when it comes to commodities, oil and copper, based largely on the fact that we are seeing this China reopening story that is continuing to ripple uh, through the global economy. One company that certainly has suffered as a result of the lockdowns that we saw in China and in Hong Kong is Prudential. This is a company that effectively has refocused its attention uh, onto Asia, onto China. It has made a big bet on that part of the world, which has been tough recently and could get tougher going forward from here. Um, it is in the midst of a, uh, a, a, a transition in terms of management. We've got an interim CEO effectively in the form of Mark Fitzpatrick currently in charge. But earlier on today, he spoke uh, to Alex and I about what the impact this Chinese reopening and this Hong Kong reopening is going to mean for the Prudential and what kind of impact it's going to have. I think we've all been quite surprised at the speed at which it's been, it's been opened up. Uh, it, this is huge, not just for us, but also for the whole of Hong Kong. So to give, uh, give viewers a sense, uh, at the half year, we printed a number of 1.1 billion new business profit for the whole group. Mainland, visitor China, mainland visitors down into Hong Kong provide $100 million of new business profit every month when we're in the full flow version. So it's huge for our business, very, very exciting. This year is our 175th anniversary, mm -hmm. 100 years in Asia. So it's a great opening. It's a great way to begin the year. Now, the opening is also key because this is still like a person-to-person -person business for you guys, right? Um, if the reopening is lumpier than we expect or borders don't all of a sudden go wide open, when does that delay the benefit that you guys would see? 
So I think what will be fascinating to observe is what happens in the run-up to Chinese New Year. Chinese New Year is early this year. Then after that, the speed with which visitors come southbound. So if visitors come southbound in numbers that we used to see um, during the course of 2019, then that number is going to, that 100 million I spoke about is going to come through to fruition very, very quickly. In reality, we expect it to be a more gradual increase in numbers of people coming down to, main, coming down to Hong Kong from mainland China. At the moment, the numbers are about six, 7,000 a day. That is a significant, previously it was 2,000 a day. At full flight, it's a million visitors a week from mainland China into Hong Kong. So it's a huge component. So we have quite a way to run yet. And my sense is it's going to run and build during the course of this year and into next year as well. Mark, good morning. It's Guy in London. You have a huge team in Asia. That team travels around Asia. The, the restrictions placed on Hong Kong, therefore, were hugely problematic. Do you think Hong Kong has been damaged as a result of what has just taken place? Uh, and do you think that Singapore has been enhanced? Has there been a power shift as a result of this? Guy, I think without a shadow of a doubt, there has been um, damage to Hong Kong in the short term. It's a very brave person that's going to bet against Hong Kong. It's an amazingly resilient uh, market, and I expect to see people coming back into Hong Kong, especially if you've got those million visitors coming back from mainland China. So I think it's going to be vibrant. I was there four times last year. Each time I was there, it became busier, it became more energetic, it became more exciting. So I think Hong Kong will rediscover the energy, the focus, and the vibrancy it used to have. Mm -hmm. And I think that will bring people back into Hong Kong and bring business back into Hong Kong. What kind of products have shifted uh, that you may be offering um, in Asia and greater China based on COVID? So what we've definitely seen is an increase in health and protection. So in 2021, we had a 41% increase in health and protection products and policies uh, over 2020. And the first half of last year, we saw another double-digit increase in terms of health and protection products. So I think COVID has made consumers far more aware of their human frailties and the need to get some type of protection, especially in most uh, markets in Asia where the state doesn't provide much in the way of a backdrop or support for um, difficult times. So having some type, of, um, some type of protection, some type of cover is very, very valuable, not just for them, but also their extended families, because that is such an important part of Asian culture. Let's talk about your focus on Asia. Um, it's got very clearly on the screen in front of me, Prudential PLC, but it's been a few years effectively since we had the split uh, with the kind of the, the, the London operation, the European operation. Mark, does the London listing still make sense? Has the COVID story delayed maybe a greater focus on Asia? I, I know you guys in the past have made it very clear that you're looking for more Asian investors, more local investors. You've moved the times at which you have your calls, etc., in the morning to make sure that, that analysts are able to get onto those calls uh, and have that focus. Has that process been delayed? Does that, does that London listing still make sense? And, and have we seen a delay uh, to maybe a refocusing of that listing towards Asia? Guy, that's a great question. I think in terms of the, uh, the scale of our business in Asia, Asian investors are starting to look at us in a very, very different way than they've looked at us in the past. 
I think what we've done is we've started to see a greater appetite from Asian investors to invest in the company. Mm -hmm. I think what you've seen as well is um, an uptick in terms of awareness of what we do, how we're different from some of our peers. And the London listing at the moment is still where the majority of the, uh, the stock is traded. We've seen an increase in liquidity in the Hong Kong line. We raised two and a half billion in September 2021. We raised that on the Hong Kong line to try and increase liquidity there. We are beginning to see some shares move from the London line into Hong Kong. Fairly modest at this stage, but at least it's an improvement, so that's quite encouraging. And we have about 40% of our um, stock is uh, effectively owned by UK and UK investors. So it's quite a high hurdle to be able to move that across. And I think from seeing other companies relocate their stock to different, uh, to different listings, it's a multi-year process. So I think it is going to take us time. We need to continue engaging, continue spending time with investors. And I think that we will see greater and more stock move to the Hong Kong line in due course. CEO of Prudential PLC, talking to Alex and I a little bit earlier on today. That wraps things up. Remember, tomorrow morning we get Tesco numbers, we get ASOS numbers, we get Marks & Spencer numbers as well. Uh, I would look out for persimmon figures too, uh, which could be interesting and some insight into what is happening with the UK housing market. Uh, US equities currently higher, the S&P up by 7 tenths of 1%. Tomorrow also about US CPI. Hope you enjoyed the show. This is Bloomberg. <laughs>